It's Wednesday, July 13th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, what can the slow and timid adoption of coal in the U.S. tell us about the transition to solar and wind power now? Plus, this newly discovered dinosaur sheds some light on why T-Rexes had those tiny little arms. And when cities welcome physical monuments to fictional pop culture characters. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. We desperately need broader rollouts of renewable energy sources like wind and solar power, yet they've lagged for decades. Tax cuts have only gone so far. Large-scale installations face constant pushback from communities who don't like the look of them or decision-makers who would rather the money to install them go somewhere else. And on the household level, many homeowners don't want to pay the upfront cost or are overwhelmed by figuring out how it all works or simply don't like how a bunch of solar panels lining their rooftop looks. It might feel like the resistance to renewable energy sources is unique to our time, a side effect of the polarization of the basic science of the climate crisis, but as historians point out, most major energy transitions have faced a similar pushback and an extended period of adoption. Writing in the current issue of Smithsonian Magazine, Clive Thompson, aka the guy who created my favorite search engine, Weird Old Book Finder, link in the show notes, outlines the U.S.'s reluctant adoption of coal in the 19th century. So in the 1800s, the main source of energy warming homes and cooking meals was wood. America at the time had tons of wood. But deforestation was a rapidly approaching specter on the horizon as cities grew and expanded. Even as early as 1744, Thompson shares that Benjamin Franklin fretted about wood that used to be available outside every person's front door, now having to come from almost 100 miles away in some cases. We were just using so much of it. Partially because wood is not really an efficient way to heat a whole home, even small ones. Therefore, as historian Christopher F. Jones pointed out in a 2014 Atlantic article, quote, An average family of six Philadelphians at the time annually burned at least eight cords of wood, a stack four feet high, four feet wide, and eight feet long. Wealthy families used three times as much. Philadelphia's more than 60,000 residents in 1820 therefore likely consumed close to 100,000 cords of wood annually, end quote. Fortunately, Philadelphia in particular was sitting right on top of a solution to the problem of deforestation and dependence on wood. Eastern Pennsylvania turned out to be the most abundant source on Earth of a relatively rare type of coal called anthracite. Quoting further from The Atlantic, Anthracite refers to coal that has a high percentage of carbon, often 85% or even higher. Bituminous coal has 50-85% carbon, semi-bituminous 35-50%, and lignite less than 35%. It has a hard and shiny appearance, and early 19th century Americans frequently referred to anthracite as stone coal. This high carbon content has two important implications. First, anthracite has relatively few volatile gases that aid the combustion process. As a result, one cannot simply toss a chunk of anthracite coal on a fire and expect it to ignite. Burning anthracite requires specialized equipment and considerable experience. Second, anthracite is a relatively pure fuel, and it burns 
seems hotter and with less soot emissions than other coals, end quote. So all around pretty remarkable, and the bulk of the U.S. population at the time was in close proximity to it. And Jones notes that a ton of coal could offset a cord and a half of wood, so anthracite promoters expected they could achieve sales of tens of thousands of tons of coal. Unfortunately, it wasn't actually the match made in heaven that it could have been. People had a number of concerns about switching from wood to coal in their homes. First, like Jones mentioned, anthracite coal requires special equipment, not just your usual fireplace, but a whole new stove so the coal could be enclosed. That also meant learning how to use the stove and keep the fire lit properly, and how to cook with this new device, one in which you could no longer see the flames. Detailed, perhaps too detailed, guides were published and sent out with stoves to help people along, but the whole affair still had a pretty high barrier of entry and a high upfront investment for the stove itself, a stove that many people saw as an ugly, intrusive addition to their homes. So there were some genuine concerns and downsides in the beginning, but Thompson says it quickly became a cultural debate as well. People started blaming coal-fired stoves for making subpar food and causing a host of health issues from impaired vision to baldness and tooth decay, Barbara Fries, author of Coal, A Human History, told Thompson. And prominent voices railed against stoves as being un-American. Thompson dug up some key quotes here, like from Harriet Beecher Stowe in an 1864 essay, quote, Would our revolutionary fathers have gone barefooted and leading over snows to defend airtight stoves and cooking ranges, I trow, that is, believe not, end quote. And Nathaniel Hawthorne, quote, Social intercourse cannot long continue what it has been, now that we have subtracted from it so important an element as firelight. While a man was true to the fireside, so long would he be true to country and law, end quote. But then enter the truly American move, marketing and hype driven by the enviably wealthy and fashionable who, oh, by the way, are also investors in the hot new thing they're telling you you can't live without. State governments also got involved publishing research on the benefits of coal and organizing partnerships with companies to make coal and stoves more accessible for low-income households. And as with all things, as time went on, the technology got better and eventually cheaper. Many of the primary complaints from before ceased to exist. Starting and maintaining the fire got easier. The ranges were designed and decorated more intricately, so you might want to show them off instead of considering them a blemish on your home's decor. My favorite design, mentioned to Thompson by Sean Adams, history professor and author of Home Fires, How Americans Kept Warm in the 19th Century, were busts of George Washington. How could you say a coal stove was un-American if it had a bust of George Washington on top of it? And so it went. By the second half of the century, anthracite was the most important fossil fuel in the country. And by 1885, according to Thompson, more homes burned coal than wood. So what can the bumpy transition to coal teach us about our current attempt to transition to renewable energy? A key takeaway is that if even coal took this long for Americans to come around to, we shouldn't fret too much about how long it's taking for renewables to catch on. 
I mean, obviously, a lot is on the line here in terms of the climate emergency, but just because they haven't taken off as quickly as many would like doesn't mean that they're doomed. It just means they're following the same pattern of so many energy transitions in the past. Adams pointed out to Thompson that a lot of coal companies actually went bankrupt in the 19th century because the whole industry was super disorganized. Both Jones and Thompson mentioned the huge number of hucksters out to swindle people and how that contributed to folks not believing the true coal salesmen. I can see that mirrored a bit now in the sort of fractured startup culture and greenwashing surrounding a lot of renewable energy companies, specifically ones aimed at households. And Thompson adds further, quote, What's more, coal shows the need for further tech breakthroughs to make new fuels less of a hassle. With coal, Americans needed improved stoves and railways to transport the fuel. Today, we need better ways to store and transport renewable electricity. And cultural fights will continue, as more and more solar panels appear, including the industrial arrays that have taken over fields from Death Valley, California to Lewiston, New York. End quote. Meanwhile, Jones emphasizes the importance of educating consumers on how and why to use the new energy sources, saying, quote, Understanding energy transitions requires that we attend to the more humble domains of consumer behaviors. End quote. And as much as I rolled my eyes at it before, the marketing side of things really does matter too. It can't just be about saving the planet. We've seen for decades how unfortunately flat that pitch falls to many ears. We also need to emphasize the savings on electric bills and the creation of local jobs. And the aesthetic element is important, too. A handful of companies are working on less conspicuous designs for solar panels, but, you know, maybe they should try going in the other direction as well. Instead of the drab and boring gray panels or ones decorated to look like the roof beneath them, how about solar panels decorated with huge portraits of George Washington? I mean, it worked for the coal stoves. Ten years ago, in the Patagonian Desert in Argentina, once home to some of the biggest dinosaurs known to have ever walked the Earth, a team of paleontologists uncovered a treasure trove of dinosaur bones. Prime among the early finds was a nearly complete skull, arm, and lower body of a new species of Carcharodontosaurid. Writing earlier this month in the journal Current Biology, the team announced the new species has been dubbed Maraxis gigas, after Maraxis the dragon from A Song of Ice and Fire. Maraxis gigas is one of the most complete carcharodontosaurid skeletons ever found, and is providing key new insights about that group of carnivorous theropods, as well as about a wholly unrelated species, the famed Tyrannosaurus rex. Though they lived around 20 million years apart, Maraxis gigas and Tyrannosaurus rex looked remarkably similar. They were both huge, roughly 40 feet long, with giant heads, massive rear legs, and those curiously tiny front arms. In fact, if you look at the artist renderings of M. gigas, you'd be forgiven for initially assuming it's a T-Rex. They do really look extremely similar. But the two not only lived millions of years apart, they also evolved separately on the dino family tree. Quoting Science Alert, M. gigas belongs to a group known as the Carcharodontosaurids, large and predatory theropod dinosaurs characterized by hollow bones and limbs with three main digits. They are some of the biggest predators to ever stomp across Earth. 
end quote. National Geographic adds that Carcharodontosaurid means shark-toothed lizards, and among their ranks includes the Gigantosaurus, most recently featured in Jurassic World Dominion. And quoting from Atlas Obscura, Carcharodontosaurs ruled the dinosaur world, particularly in the southern hemisphere, for a good chunk of the Cretaceous. But most of the fossils we have of them are fragmentary. They died out about 90 million years ago in the late Cretaceous, end quote. But it's really M. Gigas's small arms that are getting people excited about this find. That a second species with a totally different evolutionary line had these same tiny arms makes some think they might have been of a more functional use than previously thought. And for a long time, the common line of thinking was that the Tyrannosaurus rex's arms shrank over time because they didn't have a use for them. One piece of evidence for this hypothesis is that as their arms shrunk, their heads got bigger, and they used their heads to hunt and capture prey more than their arms. But, as this latest study's co-author Peter McAvicki points out, those arms, as much as we like to make fun of them for being useless, actually did retain some muscle mass, so they must have served some function. Lead author Juan Canale said in a press release, quote, I'm convinced that those proportionally tiny arms had some sort of function. They may have used the arms for reproductive behavior, such as holding the female during mating, or support themselves to stand back up after a break or a fall, end quote. And again, that at least two species independently evolved the small arms suggests there may have been some sort of function. But small arms and passable resemblance to the T-Rex are not M. Gigas's only interesting features. Quoting National Geographic, its feet were also tipped with sickle-shaped claws, similar to those wielded by velociraptors. The researchers also found that the skull of M. gigas was adorned with crests, bumps, and ridges, which they believe the dinosaur used to attract potential mates. By scanning the dinosaur's brain case and taking a closer look at its arm, scientists hope to learn more about how the body of the species compares to that of other Carcharodontosaurids. End quote. And they still have so much more to continue analyzing from other fossils at the site, which McAvicki called a dinosaur graveyard due to the sheer number of bones there. And Phil Bell, an Australian paleontologist who was not involved with this particular study but has worked in the region, made a very good point to Atlas Obscura. Quote, Paleontology in the Southern Hemisphere gets overshadowed by what goes on in North America and to some extent Asia and Europe. But to look at dinosaurs from the North is to consider only half of the evidence. We got so much wrong in the past because of that exact reason. Now, places like South America are a beacon for the future of paleontology. Big discoveries are going to be more frequently made there and will have a more dramatic impact on the field. We probably haven't even scratched the surface of what's weird and wonderful about dinosaurs. End quote. Albuquerque, New Mexico has announced they will soon be unveiling statues of Walter White and Jesse Pinkman from Breaking Bad. The city became an important element to the show over the years, and Breaking Bad remains a sizable driver of tourism. So series creator Vince Gilligan, who is donating the statues after having had them personally commissioned from sculptor Trevor Grove in 2019, said in a statement, quote, over the course of 15 years, two TV shows and one movie, Albuquerque has been wonderful to us. I wanted to return the favor and give something back. These larger-than-life bronzes of Walter White and Jesse Pinkman exist thanks to the generosity of Sony Pictures Television and the artistry of sculptor Trevor Grove, and I love them. It makes me happy to picture them gracing the Duke City for decades to come, attracting busloads of tourists." 
end quote. Uh, sure, it's a little weird to think about big statues put up by a city honoring meth manufacturers, but stories are stories, I suppose, and this is one that has become very significant to the city of Albuquerque, or at least their bottom line. The statues will be unveiled in a ceremony attended by city officials and Breaking Bad creators and stars on July 29th, after which the statues will be on display indoors at the Albuquerque Convention Center. And meanwhile, Netflix has just commissioned artist Stan Hurd to craft a giant, intricate crop circle on a farm in Indiana in honor of new fan-favorite Eddie Munson. Played by Joseph Quinn, Eddie Munson debuted in season four of Stranger Things this year and quickly took the internet by storm. The crop art is seriously impressive, very worth checking out at the Mashable link in the show notes. But you know, also, like, at least a little bit weird. More weird than the Breaking Bad statues? Probably not. Less permanent and central to the city. In any case, Netflix isn't even revealing where this crop circle is located. And you know, I, I do remember I was beyond thrilled when I accidentally stumbled on the Captain America statue inside a shopping center in Brooklyn. The statue was originally on display at New York Comic Con, and then at Prospect Park, and then Barclays Center, both in Brooklyn. And when it was unveiled, it was a whole official ribbon-cutting deal run by the city. Commissioned by Marvel and created by local sculptor David Cortez, the statue shows the MCU, vaguely Chris Evans version of Captain America, thrusting his shield in the air, and the pedestal quotes the movie character as saying, I'm just a kid from Brooklyn. Now, there's a whole debate about how the statue should be in Manhattan, because the character from the comics was originally from the East Village, not Brooklyn, but hey, the statue was clearly made to be the Brooklyn version, so that's kind of that. And again, it's just kind of a cool point of hometown pride, and when it was displayed outdoors, it did bring droves of tourists and local fans out to see it. Like the Breaking Bad statue probably will, it also brought some critiques about commercialization of public spaces, and I'm sure they both will or have elicited complaints that statues should honor real local residents who contributed to the community, not fictional characters from TV and film. It's always an interesting line to think about, though. You know, we have tons of statues and public art depicting characters from mythology or classic stories, plenty of them which seem problematic through our modern lens if they didn't at the time. So, you know, if we see the Alice in Wonderland statue in Central Park as a celebration of a classic story, at what point does Captain America or even Walter White become worthy of the same canonization. I mean, Alice in Wonderland has nearly as many drugs in it as Breaking Bad anyways. So I am going to be taking a little bit of a long weekend starting tomorrow. A little bit of a mini summer vacation, I suppose. So there will be no show tomorrow or Friday. No show Thursday or Friday. I will be back on Monday, though. If you're looking for something to listen to until then, why not hit up the archived episodes? We have made so many episodes of this show at this point, and a lot of the older ones remain pretty evergreen. I might drop a few links to some of my favorites in the show notes for you to peruse. Or if you are into tech news, you can always listen to our sister show, The Tech Meme Ride Home, hosted by Brian McCullough. But whatever you listen to or not, I hope you have a great rest of your week and a fantastic weekend. I will talk to you again on Monday.